Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 126 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And this episode is another one of those AMAs or Ask ask Us or Ask Me Anything. So Jackie, this is a really great, we've tried to do this on a regular basis, is to really invite our listeners to think about some questions that they may you know, have about their way of eating anything that they're curious about that we can answer for them yes and we try and we do that every 13 weeks and sometimes we get questions sometimes we don't we sometimes we do other things like last time where we had some members from the facebook group on just chatting that was our christmas one wasn't it yeah it was lovely lovely to have our Famously Keto uh, Facebook members and uh, ask, you know, just having a general chit chat around their, as we heard, their way of eating is completely different and how they were managing the holidays, which is really a great time now, seeing as we've gone through the new year and here we are back into the swing of things where we, I liked Jackie in your newsletter, you were saying, I did plan to be off plan and now Jackie is back on plan yeah well that's me I have to do that otherwise I would just let it go completely I think I'm not sure but and and I put it out there and tell people because that keeps me accountable and making sure that I do get back on plan so if people know that I'm off that's fine and then I have to get back on that's right in my head I have to have a date yeah to hold you to account and like any smart goal which is specific and measurable and what the actions the results and the timeline those sorts of accountabilities which you measure to be off and then back on you hold yourself to account and I, I like the public visibility of telling certainly the listeners or you know in our Facebook group that look this is the way that it makes this lifestyle sustainable for me is to to plan to go off plan um, here's my start date and here's my end date and I really like that you have that very mature, full, sort of insightful ability to go start, stop. Here are my my and the, and the accountability, the communicating the accountability. Yeah, I do wonder if I didn't go off plan, how my um, let's say weight goals would be at the end of the year if I just stayed on plan. But I can't see that happening. It's you know this to me is a way of life and and I quite like it so I'm going away again in March and I'm not I'm not going to worry about it I just 
I'm not going to go mad, but I'm not going to worry about it. So I will be eating some bread. And what's the other things? Uh, yeah, bread is the main one. You know, lunchtime, have a sandwich type thing. That's mm. fine. It's all good. Yeah. So I have my number one accountability buddy back with me. So Andrew is back here in Melbourne. And we are really holding each other to account. And there is a couple of accountabilities, which is we have some structure with our meal times. We have structure with our making our lunches ahead of time. Both of us obviously working busy, busy jobs now. One of the biggest accountabilities is after our supper time, we have to go for a walk. So Andrew is, there's no wriggle room. So we clean up, we do the dishes, dishes are away and it's like right out the door, shoes on, out the door. And we're going anywhere between two kilometres and five kilometres, which in miles, it's around about three miles. So just over one to three miles anywhere from, you know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes to the three miles or the five kilometres is about one one hour. Yeah, very good. That's yeah, your, long, really, that's yeah, your long legs that you can do five kilometres oh, in an hour. You've seen me trying to keep with his military, you know, his military step, his quick step, military step, his pace is just, it's exhausting. With, with any exercise, it's like, oh, the way I'm doing it. But once I'm there, I'm fine. It's dragging me out. That sort of, you know, make I make it bigger than Ben Hur. And what, but once I'm there, I'm doing it. Yeah. So, one you're thing not doing it tonight, or are you going after we record? Yeah, I'll, I think I won't get a free pass for this. I'll just delay, delay it. But it, it is summertime here. So, the sun is setting late anyway. So, One of the questions, and this is getting to our AMA, in our Facebook group, one of the accountabilities which we've been talking about certainly has been about testing, and that's ketone testing. And I I thought it'd be a really good, Jackie, to just explain, I suppose, what is the testing, how we use the testing as a feedback mechanism, and for and maybe to share with the listeners how I've used it as an accountability measure, seeing as we're we're talking about accountabilities. Yeah. So I think the first question is, does somebody need to test their ketones? The answer to that question would be no. You don't need to test to see if you're in ketosis. This is really because there's a number of different things or a number of different ways that you know that you have a physiological change in the way that you are accessing your fuel. And some of those for certainly for me is that I have a lot more energy. I have a I have a mental clarity. My energy lasts all day. I am not hungry. So I do know if we're testing to see if we are producing ketones that there are other ways that my body tells me that I am accessing, you know, my primary fuel sources fat. Yeah, although I would say I, I saw a post, it was not in our Facebook group, it was in a different Facebook group that's saying, oh, this food isn't keto. And it's like foods are not keto. It's not about the food. It's about how your body responds to the food and there was this whole debate going on um which i dipped in for a bit but then 
um, dipped out again because I just haven't got the time. And and my thoughts are, if you want to be in ketosis, you do need to test because otherwise, how do you know? So you can't really say you're doing a keto diet unless you're in ketosis. And then, but, then you but do the need to test. Well, but the way to get into ketosis is to choose the right foods. So that's the thing. So it's almost like when I therapeutically restrict carbohydrates to less than, say, 20 grams, then I the likelihood, the increase your likelihood of obviously being in ketosis. Yeah. So I think there's a, a nuance to you can confirm that with testing. But there are, if you don't want to use a def, use that instrument, then there are other physiological effects of being in ketosis, such as, and you can sort of, you know, find those um, for yourself. Yeah. Good. So if we are going to test, what do we test with? There are three different ways to test. That's depending on the type of ketone that you're testing for. So there's breath, blood, and urine. So a urine, well, we, we've spoken about this before, actually, on, on another AMA, but the urine test is not, it's not a great marker, is it? Because it's fine when you start out to, because your body's overproducing um, ketones and therefore you're peeing them out. But once your, your level is, you know, you're getting into your level, then it's not necessarily a good way of testing because your body will actually produce less than than it needs to pee out. That's right. So then there's the second way we sort of mentioned was where that's, as you said, it's a very early indicator. Another indicator is, is blood ketones, and that's a very popular way of testing. You'll see that you can use your blood glucose meter and you choose a different strip to be uh, able to test the... Uh, to test the blood the blood ketone but you do need one that will test ketones so not all glucose monitors will test ketones i is my understanding all right so in certainly here in australia there we have the like the keto mojo which we've heard from the uh, from dorian uh, on on a previous episode and that particular device like other devices there are a number of different other brands which has two types of strips so one strip for blood glucose and one strip for blood ketones which has a different enzyme that draws that up and produces a a result a measure whether you're in america in milligrams per deciliter or in australia in millimoles per liter so it gives you a a number so yeah. it gives you obviously it quantifies that particular measure. Yeah. And then we've got the breath ketone meter. So that again, and this is a really interesting part, is obviously our body produces these byproducts of, of fat metabolism, and we can produce a, a breath ketone. So again, it's a different chemical that the body produces, and we can measure that on our breath. So initially when we're talking about becoming fat adapted and people will say, oh, my breath stinks, you know, and I've got this this juicy fruit. So that sort of, you know, acetone, which it is, it's an acetone on your breath that you are blowing off 
a a ketone on your ketone body on your breath. Though this particular ketone can be measured by taking a big breath in and expiring and blowing it into a meter, a device which records the 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 chemical um, as a breath on your breath. Yeah. Although Anders Merman said you don't need to take a big big breath in, so you don't want to take a big breath in because if you're taking a big breath in, you're actually diluting the amount of ketones that you have. So you're just breathing normally and then just breathing out. So it it sort of is is this almost instinctive response? I'm going to be breathing, but anyway, yeah. but it is you have to try not to do that. Yeah, the technique is obviously thinking not trying to overthink a just breathing normally as you said and yes just breathing and expiring and so measuring the the ketone body on your expired breath which is really interesting which i know that you've you've got the that particular device and when we're comparing and contrasting the blood ketones to the breath ketones it is almost like that same 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 but different so you can't compare the two numbers because it's a different a different um, ketone body. So, but it is interesting for you because you've done that. You've been sort of doing both in tracking one is higher and one is lower and one is higher and lower throughout the day. Sometimes it's so. very similar. Yeah. They're, so sometimes it's similar and sometimes there's a massive difference. Um, mm. So you can't, yeah, you can't take your breath and think your blood is the same. But no. But my my question is, which does it matter which one you use? Does it matter if you do breath and work with that one, or does it matter if you do blood and just blood? No, it doesn't matter. I think the data that you get is about trends. So whatever data point you're collecting in whatever day or time or whatever food or whatever you are doing in terms of measuring it's about not that single data point it's about the trend so is it going up is it going down what are the impactful things that are influencing that particular data point at that time so because you can't take a single measure and go you know you can't you have no context it's not a single data point doesn't give you any relationship to anything. So you need to be able to collect multiple data points to see where the trend line is going. And that's where I'm talking about the accountability and the feedback loop. So the double double loop feedback. So, you know, you feed forward to feed back to feed forward to the next iteration of whatever it is that you're doing. So I think that it's, it doesn't matter what you take, it's, well, being consistent. So consistently you can't take your blood or breath and then try and ext- extrapolate that because you're testing two different things. So the trend won't emerge because it's, it's the sample is not the same. Yeah. So you, you you take test your blood quite regularly, don't you? I do. And the reason, and this goes to your question as well about testing and and the hows and the whys, the testing strips in Australia are, are relatively cheap comparatively to the UK and to the US. So I have the convenience. So that's one thing is the testing measure process convenient. 
And it's not necessarily impactful on my lifestyle because of the, the price point. So I can do that because the price point. And the why for me is important to, as I said, the feed forward and feedback for my sense of accountability to commit as a commitment to this way of life. Yeah. So if somebody was thinking about, okay, I want to get a ketone meter, which one should I choose? Let's go through some of the benefits and disadvantages of each. So go on, you go. So the urine one is it's cheap. Those strips are cheap. But the disadvantage, so that's an advantage, but the disadvantage is that it only tests very early when you're starting out on, you know, changing the way that you eat to when you're restricting carbohydrates. So it's only effective at the start of that transition period. So it can't really be used long term. So the next one would be if you're wanting to test your blood ketones. So there is obviously um, an initial outlay of buying the meter. So there are a number of different meters on the on the market. And as I mentioned, in Australia, the meters are relatively inexpensive. So, but the ongoing costs then are the strips. So purchasing the strips is the reoccurring cost because it's a single use. And it's a so it's a single use per per um, per test. Sometimes you don't get enough blood, and the meter says, "Well, you timed out." So then you've just blown. For me, you know, it's 70, 80, um, you know, Australian cents. So and it's just like, oh no, you know, that's about fifty p. But um, or a ketone sort of, you know, strips can be say a one Aussie dollar or you know that's actually you know quite 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 expensive to be making a mistake so but the the yeah and we've done it yeah and we've, we've all done it but the so that's a negative the negative is the cost it's an ongoing cost for single use and there is obviously an outlay for the meter yeah and you've got to prick your finger each time yeah, so for those people that have issues with blood or pain, so you have to you have to draw blood. Although it's not particularly Where painful. I must say it's not particularly painful. But each time you go to press the button that sends the needle, I just sort of hesitate. Do you hesitate? I always go, <gasps> even though it doesn't hurt. Um, no, Andrew's a bit of a – I do hear that from the bathroom in the morning. It's like, you know, it's just like it's every every time, and it's like surely by now you should know what's coming. So you know, like that anticipatory sort of you know jump and yelp. And it's like anyway. But what's really interesting is to sort of go to a way to mitigate and offset the use of the strips is the breath meter. So this provides a legitimate, valid, credible, safe non non finger pricking blood alternative that has no reoccurring cost and that's why the breath meter is a really excellent option for providing you with that accountable data as many times as a day that you want to you know blow into the meter and yeah without the reoccurring costs how have although, you found it although that said um when I was speaking to Anders, one of the things he was saying is you don't want to do it around food 
Um, so ideally on an empty stomach, you don't want to do it around brushing your teeth. So you need to remember to do it before you brush your teeth. So all those things do influence, especially teas and coffees and alcohol. They do influence the reading that you're going to get. So you you sort of you still are a bit limited about when you can take it, when you can use it. So there is that restriction as well. But the thing I find is that there is there's no additional cost. So I could take it in the morning. I could take it before my lunch. I could take it before my supper. I could take it before bed. All those sorts of things if I wanted to. Yeah, which is good, which is which, which again gives you those multiple data points without incurring a cost. So imagine if you wanted to do that particular testing schedule, the cost inherently per strip would add up. Yes, definitely. So if, particularly if you were wanting to try a particular modification. So you're doing an intervention as a scientist, you want to change one thing and you want to know how you you're tracking how you're tracking and taking those multiple um, data points and imagine it the cost would ramp up if you were doing by strips now jackie we haven't talked about the fourth way of of testing okay you and i have had the opportunity and we purchased and it's at considerable expense a continuous glucose monitor now So this is an alternative which gives you two weeks of continuous glucose monitoring and it's a device that's attached to your arm and it sends a small uh, needle into the interstitial space. So it's it's between your muscles and your, say, the the surface of your skin. And with an app on your phone, you scan the device which is attached 24-7 for the 14 days to get an instant reading. So the negative of that is one, there's a number of negatives. One, it's only limited for 14 days. So it's it's quite, you know, restrictive in that way. Two is the expense. And three, it doesn't do ketones. It only just does your continuous glucose. And four, I noticed that there was a difference in the blood glucose reading and the the one you know the continuous glucose and that was because it's measuring the glucose in a different fluid in a fluid space so that's a bit like comparing the blood ketones to the breath ketones it's different well i didn't quite get a definitive answer what i got was that it was still glucose it's glucose in a different medium but The blood glucose obviously has a particular, it's the timing of the reading, the timing of the glucose that we're testing in our blood. By the time it takes longer to get to the interstitial, so there's a lag. So there is a a 15-minute lag between the reading that was on the monitor, uh, we're using the strips, and what I did when I zapped it with with the app. So that was a bit disconcerting and it was actually quite a large variation well for me it was like it was a large more than one millimole variation so to me that was quite a large variation in what sense so blood was higher or lower lower and the uh, continuous glucose monitor was higher but again so but again it was about the trends 
so even though it was it's I had I started higher it was consistent it gave a consistent reading which would have been mirrored what I had on the monitor but that one millimole difference variation tracked yeah yeah but like we said it's not ketone it doesn't test ketones it doesn't and you know theoretically you could you said it's 14 days and you know one monitor is 14 days you could keep it going but it it is a considerable expense so here in the uk they're around 60 pounds for two weeks so 120 pounds a month um and here in the uk you can buy them but i think in the us you can't you need a prescription so um what's it like where you are so in Australia, they're around about $100. So, and that's for two weeks. You don't need a prescription and, yeah, you can just buy them through the pharmacy. So, yeah. So that's off I the think- shelf. But if you, but if, yeah, but if you were a diabetic, you would, we would be, I think it's an insulin dependent diabetic. You were able to get that funded through our universal healthcare. Yeah. And I think you can here as well, or some people can. So that, you know, if somebody is a a diabetic, then that's worth talking to their GP about. But what I think, you know, what I found, and I don't know if you found the same thing, is when you're eating low carb or very low carb, the actual glucose monitor doesn't tell you very much because you just get the highs and lows of the different times of day. So maybe stress but also that waking up time, that dawn phenomenon, phenomena. Um, and um, But the rest of the time, it's fairly flat. You just have little jump ups at, at mealtimes, but they're quite small. They don't jump up very much. So what do you learn from that? I'm not sure. And it was super interesting when I said, oh, Jackie, you know, I sent the picture of, you know, look at me, my biohacky sort of, I'm going to experiment. And you went, eh, yeah, it's just going to be flat for two weeks. You know, what's the point? But it was really interesting. Data was really, it made me really curious to be zapping my arm every five minutes to see what the impacts was. So I think the data insights were two things, I it was interesting to see the data change according to the foods and certainly off, you know, planned off track foods, just to sort of see how that, how I reacted. But like you said, the blip for me was actually quite a sharp increase. And then I being, yeah, being a normal person, you know, in terms of my responses. So, and not being really, someone who has had a, had problems with their glucose control and really quite well glucose controlled, the, the blips were, you know, sh- sharp, high, up and down. Mm. The second point was the impacts of sleep and stress. Those n- non-food-related impacts w- were particularly insightful when I hadn't slept well and obviously having the higher morning glucose. And when I was feeling stressed, you could see the impacts of cortisols on on my glucose. I think that was really good to to know what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. But we could guess that, you know, you don't need a meter to tell you that you're stressed or that you didn't sleep well. 
I get the sleep. And that's the other thing about trackers as well. So I know you've got an aura ring and you wear an Apple watch and I wear a Fitbit. So there is other ways of measuring. We have inputs to information to give us that sort of description quantitatively of how we are tracking. Yeah. Good. So um, let's wrap up by um, pointing out that listeners can go and listen to the people that have mentioned or are involved, well, they're all involved in ketone meters. So we've got um, Vanessa Spina from episode 87. She has her uh, zone meter. Um, Anders Merman from episode 103. He's got the ACE track. And if listeners go to getacetrack.com and then put in the coupon code fabulously keto, they'll get a 40 euro i think it is or 40 pound can't remember which fairly similar amount anyway discount and then um uh, dorian greeno from keto mojo um that was episode 115 um and again i think if they use our link um if they're buying a meter they get something like 15 percent off something like that so we'll put all the links in the show notes it's really great so one of our Fabulously Keto Facebook members asked about gut biome. So Jackie, with your nutrition training, your nutrition training, what have you learned about the role of our second brain, the gut being our second brain? Well, actually, because um, most of my training is is through the primal health, um, we don't didn't focus very much on that. Um, and so it's more about, ancestral living and and eating real food rather than gut microbiome um i haven't read or well i haven't read any of tim specter's work on the gut microbiome so he does a lot but he recommends eating 30 different vegetables every day um from my understanding I thought it was 30 a week, but my friend said, no, it's 30 a day. Anyway, I think I've just got my personal opinion on this. And I'm not, I don't know enough to, you know, to say anything more than my personal opinion, I think, which is, I think your gut microbiome changes depending on what you eat. So do you need to eat lots of vegetables? I don't think so. Um, if you go back ancestrally, we wouldn't have eaten lots of vegetables. They wouldn't have been available. We, you know, I'm talking pre, um, w- when we started cultivating, um, grains and foods and vegetables. So pre that time, there wouldn't have been a lot of vegetables around and we would have picked stuff off of bushes as we wandered around, maybe, but we wouldn't have had a lot and it wouldn't have been the mainstay of our diet. And therefore, I don't think we need them that much. Um, but that said, if somebody wants to eat loads of vegetables, I don't see, you know, if they can, if their body can cope with that, then the microbiome will adjust accordingly. So my personal opinion is eat what you want and your microbiome will adjust. Just make sure it's real food and it hasn't got loads of chemicals and preservatives and other things that get put into processed foods that are going to mess up your microbiome. Mm. 
And antibiotics, of course. Of course. The, antibiotics mess it up. The public health collaboration we went to in 2019, there was a wonderful presentation there by a psychiatrist who reminded us that the gut microbiome was a place where actually hormones are produced. Mm -hmm. So that was a really insightful presentation. And where she was coming from it was as a practitioner that her patients or clients with chronic mental health were eating a diet that was obviously high in processed foods. So there was no real, real foods involved in their daily diet which was impacting on their ability to make these hormones, the hormones which the site of some of them were actually based in the gut. So there are new ways, and this is where it gets to our second brain, that our gut and the gut and the biome in that in our gut is actually part of that second brain where we are not just, you know, our up top brain, but we've also got our gut brain as well. So it's important to, as you said, to be eating the real foods to make sure that we are nurturing a healthy environment in our gut. So the biome that's in there, the bacteria that's in there is obviously healthy and producing producing hormones. That for me was a real new insight to know that there is those links to to hormones and why our gut biome is so important. The things that, as you mentioned, about eating the real foods, avoiding obviously the crap, you know, the crap, the the high carbohydrates and the processed refined foods there, the seed oils, where it has distinct changes to the cell membranes and that's the those highly processed oils, so the seed, the polyunsaturated seed oils, which has impacts on the cell membrane. So what we're trying to do is really have a greater understanding, and this is a new area of research around the biome. So what is what it is and how it's cultivated, what maintains it, what impacts it, and its relationship to that holistic sense of all our body systems and that is obviously our our other organs our relationship to regulating hunger and there are certain cells in our stomach that regulates that and the hormones there is the leptin and ghrelins so that's obviously in our stomach which is a really highly acid area the lower gut biome again that changes in the function and the role of extracting water and concentrating the mass the mass the poop um yeah so that's that's another another role and function of that and when you think about the the fact that the gut is really this long tube from our mouth all the way down and the meters and meters of intestine to finally getting out. So it's really quite an outside-in tube that goes all that way. And the environment changes from being highly the enzymes in our mouth for that initial digestion to the highly acid in our stomach. So the the high pH there, sorry, it should be a low pH because it's acid, but lots of lots of pH there. <laughs> and then see the, the role of our various parts of our small and large intestine to concentrate and extract the nutrients and the diversity of the microbes in there changes along the way. 
So new learnings all the time. I've, did I share with you that article the other day I had about the biome and exercise preference? I think it was no. a bit of a... I'll have to put the link in the show notes. So apparently your exercise preference is linked to your gut biome. So Jackie, who knew that perhaps my happy biome is the reason why I don't like exercise. Yeah. And I think we what we need to remember is that we're, this is very early days about what's going on in the biome. I think there's a lot of maybe guessing, assuming, maybe we don't know enough. I think it is a very highly, I'm going to say in inverted commas, intelligent process that maybe we can't necessarily understand very well. And I think you're right about the, the, the it's a precursor for the hormones. So most of the hormones will be, will start off in, in the gut and then go off out and i'm just trying to remember who our podcast guest was and to say why this is such a difficult area is because there the the way that we have to collect the information for that is is hard to sort of measure and test deep inside the bowel so getting the the samples the sampling technique is quite a difficult thing to get the the microbe it's hard to cultivate so some of these are aerobic and aerobic so with oxygen and without oxygen, unless you're going to be looking at the end product, so your poop um, is obviously only that's the end, not the upstream, it's the downstream, so to speak. So I'm pretty sure when we're sort of thinking about how do we measure and cultivate the pre and po, you know, uh, biotics, those sorts of things, and how we cultivate that was was very difficult Um We'll have to remember the podcast guest who was telling us about Yeah, I don't remember that. So, so there's things, yeah, so as we said, it's an evolving area of research. There, As you said, Jackie, it's an intelligent process that our body regulates, but it's around ensuring that we provide the right environment for the biome. And there's things that we know intuitively about low sugars, having fermented foods. So we know in those cultures where fermented foods is naturally part of the diet that there is other ways of cultivating a a good biome then yeah and i think we quite often hear to have a good microbiome you need to be eating lots of vegetables but i'm not sure about that i think that is just a thought and maybe true but i think carnivores do just as well with their microbiome and that their microbiome will adjust to just meat and they don't need to have the vegetables if if they don't want to. And then the other thing I was going to say, what are your thoughts around kefir and kombucha? So I was mentioning, yes, about fermented foods, but more I was thinking about the kimchi, the sauerkrauts and those sorts of foods, pickles, dill pickles, so being based vinegary. And I don't know enough about the kefir, which is a fermented milk, isn't it? It's a fermented milk. Fermented milk or fermented water, yeah. And then, yes, a water or milk kefir. And you have the kombucha, which is another fermented drink. Yeah, tea. Mm -hmm. So I only know the 
commercial sort of aspect of it, seed in the supermarket, the kombucha, and when I read the labels, they they look delicious, but it's full of full of sugar. So yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not that. So I only know of the benefits of the you know eating fermented foods to help with the with with your gut biome, but of which kefir and, and kombucha, I try and avoid the commercial products because they're certainly high in sugar. Yeah. So I have been making um, milk kefir. Um, I'm not sure. I don't. I I was having it every day. I don't have it every day now, and. I, I quite often forget to have it because you want to try and have it on an empty stomach a bit before eating. So I don't always remember to have it. And I've actually put mine in the fridge for the moment to have a bit of a rest. And then the kombucha I also have. And I think the sugar content is because you need to put sugar in the tea to start with. But I'm wondering how much is actually left by the time the fermentation has gone on. Um, so maybe there's not as much sugar as we think. And I think what you need, do need to do is probably, which I haven't done, is probably test test before and after having it and see how that affects your blood sugars, especially if you're diabetic, I would imagine. So that sort of also gets me to to yogurts. And in when we were living in Bangkok, I was making quite a big pot of like a Greek, just a plain Greek yogurt. So I did notice that having that, maybe it was with some nuts or some berries, that my blood sugars would be still, for me, relatively higher in in the morning. But it certainly wasn't. That's another fermented fermented product, which I tend to overeat. But the the point about that is it sort of got us to start drinking apple cider vinegar and taking a shot. So here is another fermented product. So with the with the vinegar, which is meant to be good for glucose control, and it became a bit of a nightly ritual for for Andrew and myself to to down a shot of of apple cider vinegar, which is yeah sour. It's just really sour and bitter, but. It, I thought it did. So certainly from my experience, it would. Yeah, the morning the morning blood sugars would be a little bit lower, but you have to obviously be consistent. So I'm not sure what the mechanism is. I've, I've tried to have a look on the on the science articles to see if there if if it's just fact or fiction, what the evidence was it was was for. But um, yeah, so apple cider yeah. vinegar. I, I've you. tried apple cider vinegar at times, and I haven't again. Not that I've been testing with it, but I haven't particularly noticed a difference. I do sometimes notice um, gut discomfort if I take it quite a lot. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Yeah, not, none of that. But the other thing was I know in America they have pickle juice. So they just have the like the vinegar juice of, for the dill, for the fermented dill pickles. So, and, uh, yeah, you can buy that in in large, large volumes and drink that. I don't mind drinking that. I'll, I'll drink the jar, the, the, the drinks of the jar once we've finished a jar of pickles. And you can leave the kombucha to for a longer time and then you get vinegar. So I have, I have, I do have some 
kombucha vinegar and I have pickled some vegetables in it. Um, I think I pickled some cucumbers and did I do oh, some broccoli. So you can make your own pickles as well. What about your pickled eggs? I tried the pickled eggs after in our interview with um, Suzanne Facer-Reeves, but they're not for me. Um, I can eat them. I could eat them. I, it's not as if to say, no, I'd never eat it, but it wouldn't be my go-to meal. I'd rather have an egg on its own. I remember seeing yeah, seeing the picture of, of your, um, your pickled eggs. But overall, uh, good gut health I is, think is prioritising that. So thanks to Nicola, Nicola Locke in our Gavasi Keto Facebook group for asking the question about gut biome. So it's really, really appreciate you, you know, posing, posing this really interesting question. And, you know, really in summary, it's really understanding the relationship of the gut, which is part of one of, one of the many body systems or body parts that we need to nurture and care for. And its relationship as a second brain to hormone health, to overall health, to ultimately regulating our blood sugars particularly is maybe not yet understood fully. So, Jackie, but after reading that article about how the gut biome has a pathway to, you know, regulating motivation for exercise, I think I need to maybe explore a bit more about nurturing my gut biome so I can really engage in exercise, you know, learn to love exercise a bit more. <laughs> and now you're going to go off for your walk. Yes, I will. So, Jackie, let's, let's, we can wrap this up. We wrap up our podcast by reminding the listeners where we can get the show notes for this episode. So the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 126. So what we should be reminding the listeners also, if you want to be keeping accountable and looking after your gut biome and tracking what you're eating, don't forget that you can access Jackie's journal. Ah, yeah. Thank you. Keep so that's a really keep, keep, keep noticing what's going on yeah, and how that affects you. Yep, and some of those those data collection points that you could be doing is obviously tracking your your blood ketones or your breath ketones or generally your mood as well as your ins and outs if you really want to be tracking the the inner workings, detail workings of your gut biome. That's not in the journal, though. You'd have to add it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Only the more diligent <laughs> person might want to be tracking oh certainly you can take your water or you know how many glasses of water that's in there yeah that is in there this is very true well what must what goes in must come out jackie yeah well unless it's used up of course <laughs> all right enough of those potty jokes thanks jackie <laughs> thank you bye for now It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? 
Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. Thank you.